Kevin Mondro here, Coach Dro, D-R-O. Welcome back to the Tell Me Your Story Coach podcast, the podcast where we advocate coaches and help young coaches learn from the coaches telling these stories. Before we get to today's incredible head coach, I wanted to share two things that I heard this week. The first was from Coach Cal during his halftime TV interview in his game versus Duke. Coach Cal said his message to his Kentucky team at halftime would simply be, everyone has to play with confidence. Sure, Coach Cal has All-Americans galore, but I love the empowering and simple message that he was about to tell his team. The second was from a former player of mine. That player... Willie Green, who I had the opportunity to be his assistant coach his senior season and his director of operations for his first three seasons at Detroit Mercy. If you don't know, Coach Willie Green is the current head coach of the New Orleans Pelicans. Coach Green is in a tough stretch, battling some massive injuries with his team and faced with a little adversity to the start of his NBA coaching career. However, I love what Willie said to the media after a tough loss to the Golden State Warriors the other night. Quote, call them up. Tomorrow is practice. You just call them up. Not out, but up. Up is, we're better than this. Again, up is, we're better than this. End quote. Tremendous stuff, Coach Green. I know you will find a way with your team. Today, we are talking to Coach Clint Pleasant. Clint is currently the head coach at Rochester University. Rochester is an NAIA school located in Oakland County, Michigan. Clint is entering year 11 as the head coach at Rochester. Oh, by the way, you'll soon hear that Coach Pleasant is also a doctor. Dr. Clint Pleasant was the head coach of the year last season in the WHAC Conference. Dr. Clint has a ton of wins at Rochester and seven All-Americans to back up these wins. No doubt that Coach Clint can flat-out coach and lead. Clint knew he wanted to be a coach when he was a little guy. Following his dad, Garth Pleasant, a Hall of Fame coach at Rochester, everywhere that his dad went. The love that Clint has for his father is a must-listen in this podcast. However, there is so much more. Sure, you're going to understand quickly why Clint Pleasant was the youngest D2 coach in the country at one time and how he helped Coach Stan Heath take Kent State to an Elite Eight. However, this podcast is also about how one moment in his family's life, actually 30 minutes, changed the trajectory of Dr. Pleasant's career. Trust me, you're going to leave this conversation as a better coach and a leader. But honestly, your appreciation for Dr. Clint as a husband, father, and man will inspire you to be a better you. Subscribe, rate, and review on whatever platform you are currently listening. Remember, we are everywhere. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, and so much more. Please keep telling your friends about this podcast. The bigger audience we can create, the bigger impact we can make with younger coaches. Follow Tell Me Your Story Coach on Instagram at Tell Me Your Story Coach. Follow Tell Me Your Story Coach on Twitter at Coach Kevin Dro. Connect with me on LinkedIn, Kevin Mondro. Enough of Coach Dro. Let's get to Coach Clint Pleasant and tell his amazing story. Real quick, before Coach Clint's story, I need to tell you about my affiliate partner that I've been supporting since episode one. That friend, Desmond Ferguson, the owner of Moneyball Sportswear. Check out MoneyballSportswear.com. Let me tell you about the gear that Moneyball produces. Men's, women's, boys and girls, sports attire, hoodie, sweatshirts, t-shirts, shorts, you name it, Moneyball has it. Get all your winter gear. Yep, I said it. Winter gear ASAP. Truly, what are you waiting for? And if you are a high school and or AAU coach and you need a new set of uniforms, please reach out to Moneyball. The uniforms that Desmond and his team create are simply spectacular. Go to MoneyballSportswear.com, shop away, enter the promo code DRO, D 
D-R-O in the coupon checkout. Grow with us. Moneyball, the only way to ball. Clint, why do you coach? Great question. Can I, can I begin just by telling you how much I think we appreciate what you're doing? Uh, I think I speak on behalf of lots of coaches that are really grateful for what you're doing, especially in the time of what we're coming out of in the pandemic. I mean, this is really kind of serving a need, you know, with professional development. And in an era where we're not getting out as much, not going to clinics, that's not as in vogue. Um, you stepped in and done something that I think is very meaningful. So again, on behalf of probably lots of coaches, I really appreciate it, Drew. Why do I coach? I love making an impact on young people's lives. I'm one of those those people that always grew up knowing what I wanted to do. You know, I didn't struggle with trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. I grew up seeing it as a kid with my dad coaching. And I'll even be honest, I didn't even grow up wanting to play in the NBA. You know, a lot of people, you know, coaches grew up as players at one point and probably had those aspirations. I didn't always knew I wanted to coach. Now that I'm doing it, uh, what I get a kick out of is really being able to have an influence on lives. And I suppose anybody can do that in any line of work. But what's unique about coaching is that you get to do it, you know, when they're in their formative years. And, uh, when when I think young adults are in need of mentors and kind of, you know, at a fork in the road in life and coaching gives a real platform to mold and shape lives. And that's what I get a kick out of. I mean, winning's fun and coaching's fun, but really just being able to mold and shape lives is why I do what I do. And again, winning's fun, but what I really enjoy is get the opportunity to actually perform wedding ceremonies of players. Unfortunately, I've even officiated a funeral of a former player. And just knowing that you've had an impact on that level and you've got these lifelong relationships is very gratifying. And I, I think if I had to boil it down to one phrase, it would be because of the impact that I, that I get to have every day on young men. You mentioned that word impact and you mentioned the wins and losses. How does a coach, do you kind of set yourself a reset every day and say like, man, it is about making an impact and not get caught up in the wins and losses? losses in the process is it hard is that something you do after the season is there a way you can kind of just bring this in daily to think about like man i'm really here to make an impact or is it just too hard during the season i think it can be hard and i've said before i think the best and the worst thing that ever happened to me Drew, was i got a head coaching job at a really young age mm-hmm. i was a head coach at an ncaa division two school that was actually making the transition to ncaa division one i think at 20 four years old. So again, best thing and worst thing that ever happened to me. And so I guess I'd back up and say, it can be hard because we're competitive. Obviously, we're doing this to to win games. We're trying to win. But I think I think as people and as human beings and as leaders, we, we really do have to sort of do this self-assessment of what's important. And maybe we'll get to this later on the show, but because of some different things that I've negotiated in my life, I've you know, I've had had different teaching moments. And so for me, it, it's it's not a struggle anymore. It used to really be a struggle during the season of trying to prioritize it. But I've gotten to a place where I think my priorities are right. And uh, I'm at peace with knowing that every day I get to make this impact. And, that, and that's really the greater win, uh, if you would, than, you know, the win on the scoreboard. What a beautiful answer. OK, so, Clint, you are the senior vice president and special assistant to the president athletic director and head coach at Rochester University. Oh, by the way, you're fresh off coach of the year honors. 
And you're also a doctor. In 2019, you accomplished this incredible goal of achieving this in education and leadership and administration. How in the world do you balance all your responsibilities? I don't know, because when you just said all that stuff, it, it, it I got stressed out. <laughs> <laughs> you know, let me try to unpack that. You know, sometimes you, 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 just, you just look up from what you're doing and you don't know any different. I had the incredible pleasure of being able to work with Coach Meyer, Don Meyer. Mm. And I remember when he finally got out of coaching and I, and I was able to spend some time with him after, you know, on the other side of coaching, he looked at me one time and said, Clint, I don't know how I did what I did for all those years. But what was interesting is that he did do it. <laughs> and so I think when you're in the throes of it and when you're doing it, you just don't know any different. Uh, and so, but at, at the risk of that, you know, that may be being too, too much of a, a pedestrian answer. You know, I, I think I'm pretty good with time management. I'm not one of those guys that, you know, likes to sit around. I found myself, you know, with, I thought with enough bandwidth on whether it be a Sunday night or, or, you know, downtimes in the, in the off season where I, I thought I could take on more and really wanted to pursue, you know, an advanced degree, a terminal degree. And so just found a way to do that. And frankly, Drew, you know, I, I, I missed a few things. I missed a game or two and, and I, I made the commitment with our president, my family and my team that I was going to do that. Mm. But um, yeah, I, I think you've got to be someone that understands time management. You can be efficient with your time and you like to be busy. But I, I think I'd go, I kind of end where I started. Sometimes you just don't know any better. Sometimes you just, you know, you just, you just grind and you look up and you're like, my goodness, you know, how, how to get all that done. Yeah. And, I, and I've been fortunate to have good assistance. Yeah, for sure. I've got good assistance on the basketball side. I've got good assistance on the, you know, athletic administration side. And I've got good assistance on the university administrative side. And so, you, you know, you lean in on people too, right? Yeah, for sure. You mentioned your dad at the top being an inspiration to you. Your dad, Garth Pleasant, the court is named after your father. Your dad was a Hall of Fame coach at Rochester. You even worked for your dad. I met your dad, ooh, 1994, 1995. I was just always enamored with your dad as a person. But, you know, I, I sit and we're recording this on the day of Division One college basketball starting, and I know basketball at all levels is starting. But just flipping through the channels tonight and watching all the three-point shots, and I remember your dad shooting more threes in 1995, 96 than any team in the state of Michigan. And your dad was just a, such a trendsetter to me, and, be, and besides being such an honorable man. But how did your dad really inspire you to want to be a coach? You know, um, and that's all I saw growing up. And, and, and I guess one of the things that my dad said when I was young, and I love this and it sticks with me to this day because here I am saying it to you. People would say when they're when they were thinking in terms of parenting, they would say it's not so much the quantity, it's the quality. You know, and so I'm a businessman. I travel a lot. I don't get to see my kids a lot, but when I'm with them, it's really quality time. And we and my dad kind of kind of grew up hearing that. And with with me, he said, you know what? That's hogwash. I don't just want quality. I want quantity too. Mm. And so he took me everywhere, Drew. I mean, he would take me out of school. I would never miss a game. I wouldn't miss practice. He would pick me up at school. We'd go right to practice. He had me in his in his team practices, you know, kind of being a screening dummy, you know, when I was in elementary school. And I just, that's all I ever saw. He let me sit next to him uh, on the bench, even as a kid. You know, that's, you just don't see that anymore today. But I was sort of introverted. I was a quiet kid and I sat there and I hate, but I was really inquisitive. I watched, I learned. And I, not only did I, you know, fall in love with basketball, but I, I fell in love with him. 
<laughs> and admired what he did. And I don't really remember the exact age, but my guess is, you know, young, young teens. I remember thinking, I just want to do what my dad does. I mean, I get to be around these kids and I can coach and I get to have an impact and it's exciting and we travel and really don't recall ever wanting to do anything else other than, I'll say it two ways, not only coach, but just kind of, kind of be like my dad. And I think, uh, you know, even as I say that now, it kind of, I kind of tear up. I mean, I, I hope that's inspiring. Yeah, to for others. sure. Well, yeah. High class individual, you know, and another thing about your dad, your dad used to have this post camp <laughs> at Rochester, <laughs> a guy named Mike Roller. And I remember participating in it. I was in college, I think coming off my freshman year and it was just incredible. I mean, just the breakdown drills about ceiling and everything. And then I also met your dad down at Lipscomb uh, with Don Meyer and uh, Jeff Tungate, who's a head coach at Oakland and a couple other guys would be down there. And what can you just break down to the audience a little bit more about Don Meyer, the coach and the person? Yeah, I certainly will try. Although, you know, uh, he was one of a kind. And as, as we say, you know, we kind of broke the mold after him, but incredibly unique individual. I mean, a true student of the game. I thought he was a savant mm -hmm. in terms of his ability to think. Uh, he was an innovator. He was also a great, you know, people don't think about this side of it much, but he was a great marketer. I mean, he was producing tapes. He was making tapes. We were selling tapes. We were doing <laughs> things like taking notes of the season, like all season long, we would take, we would follow him around and take notes. <laughs> I still have boxes of these things, bro. Eight reasons why you can win a state championship. Go. <laughs> oh, for sure. For sure. I mean, I, I, I literally have a mini storage and a portion of that mini storage is just stuff that I collected when I, when I was with Coach Meyer. It's still alphabetized, yeah. you know, to this day. But not only from a basketball standpoint, but he had a wealth of knowledge and he was willing to share and just extremely unique. I mean, he could hold court with anybody. People flocked to learn from him. Yeah. And being able just to have, you know, two and a half years, three years with him, you know, pretty much around the clock was, uh, I don't know if, you know, there's, you know, I just talked about my dad, but maybe next to my dad, you know, no one's had a greater impact on me, not only in basketball, but just life. In fact, I'm in my basement right now. I'm looking at a framed picture, you know, that he signed for me, mm. um, you know, a year or two before he passed in, in right. just the life lessons that, uh, you know, that he passed on are just priceless. Time for a quick 30 second timeout, Coach Clint. Getting this podcast to you is all because of my friends at Buzzsprout. Buzzsprout is hands down the easiest and best way to launch, promote, and track your podcast. Your show can be online and listed in all the major podcast directories like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, and so many more. You also get a great looking podcast website. They provide audio players that you can drop into other websites. They give detailed analytics to see how people are listening. To start your own podcast, follow the link in my show notes. Let Buzzsprout know that I sent you. You'll get a $20 Amazon gift card if you sign up for a paid plan. And this also helps support my show. Buzzsprout, the easiest way to start a podcast. So you've been the head coach at Rochester since 2011. You know, Rochester is obviously home in so many different ways. You know, I wanted to ask you something, though, tonight, and we're recording this on a Tuesday. I was watching Stan Heath with Eastern Michigan coach against Indiana, and you mentioned Abilene Christian. But I also remember how you guys went to an Elite Eight with you were with Coach Heath at Kent State. Just looking back at it now, just I want to circle back one more time. Like, how in the world was it like for younger coaches out there to be a head coach? 
coach, such an early part of your career. Yeah, I mean, again, blessing and a curse. Um, and and that, that was quite a whirlwind. I, I went from being with Coach Meyer at Lipscomb to then going to Wayne State with Ron Hammy. And those two programs were completely different and, mm-hmm. and both extremely successful. And then bounced down to University of Tennessee Martin, very different situation in the OVC conference. Learned a lot, was there for a few years, and then with Coach Heath. And so you just kind of introduced to all the all all things Michigan State basketball and just incredible experience. And of course, had, had a great team, as you just referenced, into the Elite Eight. And he took the Arkansas job, as you might remember. Mm-hmm. And I was headed to Arkansas with him. Mm-hmm. And then Jim Christian got the Kent State job and asked me to come back to Kent and be, you know, one of his lead assistants. And then, so life was great. And then I think two or three months after I had settled back at Kent State with Jimmy, Abilene Christian called. I didn't even know the job was open. And uh, jumped at it because that was my alma mater. I actually played football there, believe it or not, in college in the, in the, in the mid-90s. Hmm. Um, you know, again, looking back at it, made a lot of mistakes, but I, I hope I learned from those things. I mean, that's what we say, right? That, you know, failure is actually a real opportunity. Hmm. And so it was hard. I mean, I was only a few years older than the players. I took over a program that had just been in the absolute cellar for years, but it was my alma mater again. So there was excitement, you know, that kind of a hometown kid coming back and coming off this amazing Elite Eight run. And so re- really tried hard to balance that. But, you know, I think now we know based on research that, you know, our frontal lobe doesn't even really develop until we're in our late 20s. And so, you know, I was trying to negotiate a whole lot at a young age. And again, I'm proud of a lot of the things I did, but it was also a tremendous learning experience. So I read today that one of the things you tell your basketball team is you tell your team every year that one of my jobs is to take something complex and make it simple. How do you take something complex and make it simple? That's a great question. And I think, you know, to dig into that, I wish you were at practice this week and, and you could sort of make your own your own judgments uh, in, in terms of how, what are our outcomes. I think, Drew, to me, it's being a teacher. And so what we do in, in our program, and hopefully you'd see this if you come to practice, and we even say this to our faculty members at Rochester, I mean, come to our practices. This is our classroom. This is where, you know, this is where we teach. This is where, you know, it's an incubator, right, for us. And so and so I think that's it. So we, we take something that's very complex, and let, let me explain what I mean by complex. Mm-hmm. Basketball is the fastest team sport on the smallest and shortest surface area court. So there is so much happening, and it's happening quickly. And you don't have time to, you know, stop and process, you know, in the moment. And so we take that chaotic situation, and we try to make sense of it by teaching. And so what we do is we are constantly teaching and emphasizing the things that are important that we, the things in our in our program that are important to us. So much so that on any given day, I could sort of pass the mic to one of the players and they could, they could give the lecture. You know, this is why we're doing this defensively. This is why we're doing this offensively. This is why we do this. So I think, I think, I think one of the ways we simplify it is we're constantly teaching. It, it, we're not just practicing, if you would, or conditioning or getting shots up or running through our stuff, but we're really trying to teach why we do what we do. So these teaching points, like how long has it taken you to develop them that these are your main core points that your players, you know, need to be simple for them? We could be on the show all night because there's so much to go into, but mm-hmm. one of the things we do, Drew, is we, we redshirt all of our freshmen. And one of the reasons we do that is because we get that 
that extra year. Like you could come into our program and on paper be our best player as a freshman. We're redshirting you mm. because we've got a system in place where we try to keep everyone there five years so that when you get to year two or three, you are so much, you're a veteran, you know, and so you can start helping teach, you know, the rookies or teach the young guys. And so what we do is we've got the system, we've got this language. And I don't know if we can, if I can go back to, you know, I don't think it was birthed one time, one day, one night, you know, the day before I got the Rochester job. I think it's just kind of like you, you know, you pick up stuff along the way and you tweak it, but then all of a sudden you wake up one morning and you're like, oh, we've got a system in place and I could even put this on paper. And so, you know, that, that happened over time. Things we've learned from different people, obviously Coach Meyer being one, you know, I inherited a program that my dad, you know, my dad was the head coach here for almost 40 years. I mean, I, in fact, I think through this year is 50 years of mm. someone with the last name Pleasant coaching, being the head coach there. Mm. And so, we, you know, we've just picked things up along the way and we've tried to systematize it and, um, and teach. What does this mean to you? Don't give directions that can be understood. Only give directions that can't be misunderstood. Yeah, that means a lot to me. <laughs> so, so to me, what that means is we have to be people who are thorough and who pay attention to detail. And we try to do that in everything we do. We try to do that with the way we prepare for practice, the way we practice, the way we treat our locker room, the way we travel on the road. We want to look the same as a team. Uh, we want to have the same you know, set of language that we use. And we don't want to leave anything up to chance. We don't want to be sloppy with the way we talk. We don't want to be sloppy with the way you know we're trying to convey something that's important. And so we lay this principle down from the very beginning every year before the year starts, we always start the season with the team retreat where the team goes away for a weekend and we get off the grid. We take their cell phones. There's no TV. There's no Wi-Fi. And we sort of have a curriculum that we go through. And part of that curriculum is that concept that we want to be thorough in our approach. We want to communicate clearly. We don't want to leave things up to chance. And to me, that phrase, even though it might sound silly, if you really think about that phrase, I mean, I could probably lecture for 30 minutes on giving you an example of how I could give you directions that certainly could be understood, but there could be dozens of things that could easily be misunderstood if I'm not thorough in the way I'm communicating to you. So we take that little phrase and we try to try to use it as a as a framework for having you know attention to detail and being people that are very intentional. I'm on your LinkedIn page and I just love the bio that you, you wrote about yourself. And one of the phrases that I love is you said, I believe in listening more than talking over others. How can, how can coaches truly listen? Well, let's think about that. So here's one of my thoughts. And I'm breaking the rule because I'm talking right now, but give me some <laughs> grace here. We wanted to do the show, right? If you are talking, Drew, you're not learning anything because whatever you're saying is something you already know. So the only time when you're actually learning and growing is when you got your mouth shut. Because again, if you're talking, you're communicating something that's already in your brain. And so sort of rule number one is, is if we're going to grow, if we're going to get better, we, we must be good listeners. Another phrase, you've probably heard it, is we, we listen to understand instead of of listen to respond. So a lot of times I will teach something and I'll say, are we clear on this? And, you know, I now say, tell me why I should believe that we're clear on this. <laughs> and so you're really kind of testing, you know, how well we're listening, how well we're understanding, you know, in the moment, because I mean, we really, we, we can't learn anything. We can't get better if we're not, if we're not actually, you know, processing and synthesizing the information. And so listening is critical in that way. And again, listening to understand one another, not just listening to respond. The other thing I'd say, and 
this is just my opinion, but I don't know how better I can love someone than to give them my undivided attention. We say, listen, listen to one another with your eyes. Listen with your eyes. I don't know what better gift you could give me, Dro, if we were together. And if you knew I was struggling with something and you said, Clint, I have an hour and I'm going to donate that entire hour to you and I'm going to give you my undivided space and attention. Yeah. I can't think of anything you could do to make me feel more you know, trusted, make me feel more loved. And when you do that, you know, we say happy teams are winning teams. And so, you know, we want to be a happy team. We want to be a team that loves and trusts. And so I think one of the ways you, we do that is is really focusing on listening. I've read a lot of stuff about you that you're passionate about culture building. What is culture to Clint Pleasant? We Coach Meyer used to say that it's like pornography. We don't know how to describe it, but we know what it is when we see it. <laughs> and so I think I think describing it can be pretty nuanced. But if, if, if I had to take a stab at it, I would say what culture means to me is that you create something, Drew, that actually takes on a personality. And so your program actually develops a personality. It becomes a living organism, if you would. And to me, that's culture. Like we can feel it. It has an energy to it. It's got a personality. Hopefully, Drew, people are drawn to it. And hopefully people can start to articulate how it makes them feel. And I think when you can do some of those things I just said, that's the beginnings of, oh, they, they have a culture there. there. There's a culture in place there. For better or worse, there's a culture in place there. And so those would be some of the ways that I would want to try to always circle back and assess what's happening in terms of culture building. You know, you're a veteran coach and doing this a long time now. How do you assess where your culture is of your team like right now, November 9th? Mm, yeah, I think one of the ways is the quality of our practices, number one, and, and these aren't in any particular order. Number two, that everybody is falling in line and doing the right things that we're asking of them academically and as citizens in the community. And so far today, on November 9th, you know, we're we're tracking along really well at that. And then the other thing too is I try to be aware of always having a conversation going with different players. You know, obviously, you know, I think every coach says, you know, my door is always open, but my door is open. I live very close to the university. My house is just a few hundred yards away from our campus and guys, everyone knows where I live. You know, we'll, we'll grab a guy and, you know, go out and uh, take a drive or whatever and just try to develop a relationship off the court, if you would. And I think as we're doing those things, we're, those are also opportunities to assess where your culture is at. The other thing we do is we have leadership reading groups. Um, every year, Drew, we have books that we read. We have assigned books, you know, from, from me. We're out recruiting. I say, you know, you're not just going to have textbooks from your, you know, your history professor, your science professor. You're going to have them from me too. And so I think those daily opportunities, whether it's a small group leadership reading group or whether it's a, the team reading assignment we're doing, you know, it stays in front of you. You know, the fact that uh, what we're trying to do with culture and chemistry, you know, it's, it's, it's there every day. We have players write down what they're doing when the best version of themselves is showing up and what they're doing when the worst version shows up. And then what we do is we laminate it. So, you know, if, we're, you know, if it gets wet or whatever, it doesn't. And we just take those with us. Mm. So we have them with us on the road all the time. And when someone sort of, you know, when the, when the worst of someone shows up, I mean, it's just, it's just, it's general accountability. I mean, this is what you said you wanted to work on. This is what you said you needed to do to be at your best. And I think those things all play in the culture. And I guess the last thing I'd say, Drew, is we look hard at retention. So we, we want all of our players to return. And I've been really fortunate in my, this is my 11th year as the head coach here. We just don't lose players. We don't have players leave. I mean, we don't. I mean, maybe one in 10 years. Now we'll have players, Drew, that we, we make leave. Like I'm telling you, you have to leave. Players that come to us and say, I don't want to be your coach. I want to transfer. We've been really fortunate. That, that doesn't happen. The reason I bring that up is because that's one of the ways I'm assessing our culture. And so 
So if, if that's helpful. Four pillars in your program. I love them. Character in all things. Incredible defensive pressure and intensity. Value each offensive possession. And this might be my favorite. Attention to detail. The little things are really the big things. Just a quick mm-hmm. elaboration on these four. Yeah, so the, the way it came together, when I was in college, I took a trip with uh, one of my uh, teammates I was playing football with. And we went into the UCLA locker room. Uh, we were traveling out west. He was from Seattle. And we went in their locker room and there was a sign and it was like the 34 rules of a Bruin or something like that. And no disrespect to that at all. I feel like I would see these different programs and they would have these team rules. Mm -hmm. And I thought, my goodness, how in the world can someone keep track of 12 or 15 or 34? And so I always told myself, you know, if I'm ever a head coach, I'm only going to have a couple, but I'm going to make sure that, you know, as coaches, you know, you said this too, I'm sure it's not what you teach, it's what you emphasize. And so I always told myself, I'm going to pull out a few things that are important. Here's another phrase. I love this. I think as a coach, you can have anything you want, but you can't have everything you want. You can have anything, but you can't have everything. What I'm saying is, okay, I I can have anything I want, but I can't have everything. So here are the two or three things. Just Mm -hmm. non-negotiable. Character and all things. You know, we don't get technical files. We clean up the locker room when we leave. You know, we're going to treat people with dignity and respect. You know, I want to get after it defensively. We don't want to turn the ball over, and we're going to have a lot of detail in the way we approach things uh, in terms of being a a good teammate. And we we have, obviously, sub-points for all those, but doesn't mean I don't care about rebounding. But you know what? I don't really emphasize it because I, you know, I just, and you might think, oh my goodness, he doesn't emphasize. I mean, we, I have never done a rebounding drill. Mm. However, we've, we've always been a pretty good rebounding team. <laughs> so, you know, we, I'm just picking out the things that this is the hill I'm going to die on. We're going to get what we want with these things. So 10 seasons, seven All-Americans. How do you sweat with the players? You know, probably addressed it a little bit. I think the main way is we, we try not to ask them to do anything that we wouldn't do ourselves. No way, shape or form. It might even close to being in great shape or in the shape of one of our players. But when we do our preseason conditioning stuff, when we go on our retreat and do different, you know, Ironman type drills, I do with them. <laughs> now I'm bringing up the rear. I'm bringing up the rear every time, you know, but I'm out there. I'm out there doing it. I don't, you know, when I don't, I don't just give them reading assignments. I, I'm reading it too. So I, I try to, as cliche as it sounds, I, I try to lead by example as well. I try to lead in other ways too. I try to lead by example. I don't ask a player, maybe even our leading score to sweep the floor before practice and then not sweep it myself. <laughs> you know, I sweep the floor. I've got my CDL. I drive the bus, you know, I tape an ankle. And so I think, you know, when they see me, I guess that's my way of saying sweating with the players. What you do is you end up having a group that buys into all the jobs, the dirty jobs, the jobs that aren't dirty. You know, we all, we all do our part of the lifting. Isn't it crazy? You're 3.3 miles away from Oakland University and both you and Coach Campy have this football background. Why do you think football players make really good basketball coaches? I hope they do. You know, uh, I want one thing, Drew, and I've had several people ask me why I don't coach football. I think one one thing is is there's there's such a sense of camaraderie mm-hmm. with football. I mean, think about it. You know, you're around 110 guys. Yeah. You've got this incredible, you know, sense of allegiance, and you've got teams within the team with your positions, and and there's so much going on. And and uh, I mean, you you've seen football games the way they prepare. I mean, the detail and the precision, and even something as small as if you're on 
special teams, you there's a pad where you literally go stand on your pad on your number, getting ready to take the field for kickoff because you never want to go on, you know, have a you know be down a man. And so there's all these really interesting ways that the game of football has been organized because there's so many players, so many coaches, and you know maybe that is that something that can't be you know um, subconsciously <laughs> is taken or maybe myself. I if, if that's true, I'm glad I played football. <laughs> so let's stick on this toughness. You know, we mentioned football. Having tough conversations with your players, how do you build trust with your players that you can have these conversations when needed? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, sometimes I think, you know, the old way is the best way. And that is, you know, we, we pour into relationships and I'm a pretty inquisitive guy by nature. You know, if I, I'm walking down the road and I see a rock, I want to turn it over and see what's underneath it. And so like, I really get to know, I I feel like I get to know our guys. Um, I can probably tell you a whole lot about each and every one of our players, family situations, things that they like. Oftentimes I'll know, you know, what their, you know, silly things, what their favorite food is, you know, who their favorite, you know, artist is. And and I think when you are pouring into the person, and I'll say something else too, our current players consistently see our former players coming back. In fact, rarely do we go through a week of practice and, and where, where we don't have former players coming into practice. I mean, they're open door. All of our alum are welcome anytime. So our current players are, are, are sort of forced with uh, with seeing, my goodness, you know, all these guys are coming back and they see that we're still in each other's lives. They see me, you know, officiating a wedding. They see me, you know, hugging on a former player's newborn baby. And I think that makes impact. And, you know, and everyone's looking for a relationship. And so I think the fact that we do have 50 years of pretty much one coach, and I would I would never be so presumptuous to say that I haven't benefited from what my dad's done. At the same time, I've tried to blaze my own trail, you know, be my own person. I am. I would be a horrible Garth player. Horrible. I would fail miserably if I was trying to be Garth player, uh, just like anyone would. But I, I think current players see these things, and it really helps in terms of building relationships. So when you do have to have the hard conversation, you have an audience. You know, one of the things that I always loved coaching against you is just your intensity on the sidelines you know you're this gentle wonderful human being off the court but you get locked in those games you're so intense like this intensity you consider that part of these tough conversations like just talk to me about your intensity on the sidelines yeah that's an interesting uh you know observation because you know by nature i'm pretty introverted you know i'm a i'm a bookworm i like to sit you know uh, on my couch and read so sometimes when when uh, someone that only knows me in that context they'll come to see a game for the first time and a lot of times they'll look at me after the game and say I don't I don't know that person <laughs> like what just happened I think a lot of that is that I always thought intuitively that the team would take on the coach's personality for better or worse, the team would take on the coach's personality. And the one, I can put my head on the pillow and sleep really peacefully at night if my team played hard. Mm. If we played hard and we got after it and we were on the floor first and we were tougher and we would stick our nose in there and we were physical within the guidelines of the rules, I always felt like that's good enough for me. And I think, again, blessing and curse of being a head coach at a young age, I always felt like I needed to kind of supply that or be the spark plug of that to my guys. And so I've just, you know, I've just by nature, I'm, I mean, we call it juice, right? By nature, I've always got a lot of juice. Mm. Um, now I will say as I've gotten, you know, not that I'm old, but as I've gotten older, I, I think that's subsided a little bit. It's probably subsided some in practice, but a lot of that comes from coach Meyer too. I mean, we would say, he would always say, hit a lick every day. We want to hit a lick every day. We want to get something done and we want it. We want to go at a high level. And I, if I'm just kind of standing there being docile, I know that's how John wouldn't hit it, mm-hmm. but, um, 
I don't know. There's just something to me about wanting to supply energy to the team and kind of that concept of I'm, I'm here with you grinding. That's just kind of part of who I am. Okay. I'm going to tackle this in, in this next question in two points in whatever your comfort level is, just go with it. But 16 years ago, you were told that your wife has 30 minutes to live. Mm. Can you briefly share how this, this unfortunate circumstance changed your career perspective? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that up. Cause it's definitely, you know, recalibrated, you know, who I am. Yeah. So she had a horrible brain tumor in 2005 and they said she, she wouldn't live in fact, we had her funeral planned. Mm-hmm. You know, her eulogy was written and uh, she survived. She's got some disabilities and life's been hard, mm-hmm. uh, but, but she survived that. And I think this is the way I would say it is the phrase that I use for it, Dro, is I call it the terrible gift, which that seems like a contradiction in terms, right? But it's, it's terrible because who would ever want to go through something like that? And life has been different and life will never be the same because of what, what we have to deal with. But on the other side of it, it's been a real gift. And, and this is the gift in this part. I've had an opportunity to really learn about who I am. And I, I'm a strong believer that you really don't know who you are completely until you have trauma, until you deal with trauma, because it brings out, you know, sort of these things in you that you that you maybe didn't know you had for better or worse. And so I think the the giftedness in it is that I've learned, for better or worse, I've learned who I am. I've learned who I am under pressure. I've learned who I am when I have tough decisions to make. I've learned who I am in terms of priorities. And, uh, and, and, that, that, that's, and I, I take that as a real blessing. So I tried to take what happened, as horrible as it was, and how can this help me? How can, how can I be a better coach? How can I be a better dad? How can I be a better friend? And I, and I think it has. I think it's made me a better coach because I've learned so much about who I am. And now I can, I can come at things from a position of real self-awareness of who I am. And it's also pushed me to a place, Joe, where I've got to rely on other people. I've got to rely on higher power. And so I've started doing things like I'm pretty serious about mindfulness and meditation. I'm in a group on Monday where I'm in some pretty serious go through some pretty serious breathing exercises and I try to do energy work and get grounded. And I don't think I would have been that kind of person or been that kind of coach had I not had to deal with that kind of adversity. I'm going to get to faith here in one second, but just like when this tragedy happened in your life, did you come to a point where you just were like, the most important thing right now is taking care of my wife and my children? Yeah. Like, how did you balance that? Yeah. And I, and I I appreciate you asking that because I don't, I think deep down inside drove this still kind of gnaws at me, but that was that happened at a time where I really had some great opportunities. I mean, there's no reason to list off the schools, but I mean, I had a lot of really fun, attractive basketball coaching opportunities, both as an assistant coach at the highest level and as a head coach, even some uh, even some NBA opportunities. And when those things um, were there, they, they were easy decisions for me. And you know this, you know, because you're a dad, but. I had to step up in my parenting role because my wife wasn't even allowed to hold our kid for a, you know for a year or so because she didn't have her skull. Her skull sat on ice at Henry Ford Hospital. And so the love that you have um, as a parent, that supersedes any other thing I've ever felt. And so when I would get opportunities like that, you know, I would go home and I would obviously see my wife who, you know, I'm in a covenant relationship with and see my, my daughter and it 
you know, they just became easy decisions. <laughs> and I, here's the thing. I think sometimes if I'm really being honest, I still probably need to work through that because there's probably some deep down still confusion about why that happened and where, where could I be or where would I be. But I'm also the kind of person that like, I love my job. I mean, I wake up every morning and I can't get to the office quick enough and I love my job. So I just try to see the the blessing and yeah, but but doing something that would have compromised my wife or my my children was a, was a real non-starter. For me. And how did your faith help you through this trauma? Yeah, I, I, I don't I don't know how I would have negotiated it without that. In fact, I've always been a person of faith, but I think at some level it was probably surfacy. And when I went through those difficult times, I felt my faith kick in in ways that it had never kicked in before which actually made me more faithful because I was like, Hey, you know what, this, perhaps this is real. Cause I, I couldn't, I couldn't point to any tangible reason why I was able to deal with some of the things that I had to go through. There, there was no way for me to describe how I handled that without saying that I felt like my faith got me through that. And I wish there was more I could point to, but um, you know, that's just it. That's what faith is, right? It's the belief in something you can't quite see and grasp. And so when I felt like, I didn't have anything left in the tank. Faith would kick in. And the, and the other way faith would kick in, it would kick in in, in, the, in the form of people. I mean, people would want to ask me, you know, where was the miracle in all this? Or was there a miracle with your wife because she survived? And what I want to say is the miracle is the fact that, you know, I had drove. Bob Simon got in his car and drove to my house to give my wife flowers and bring us food. You know, we had other people that would come and mow the lawn. I mean, that like that was the miracle to me. <laughs> you know, like you're, you know, you're down in the dumps, and all of a sudden, you know, you've got people kind of, mm. kind of intubating you, kind of helping you breathe. Mm. And uh, to me, that was the miracle. And and I think those things happen because we pour into one another, right? You know, and that's one of the that's one of the great things about you know coaching camaraderie is that we pour into one another, and then when you have opportunities to lean in on one another, that's a powerful thing. It's awesome. Thanks for sharing. So you're an author now. Can you talk to me about your book that you recently wrote? Yeah. I mean, how crazy. So I love to write. I started writing when my wife was going through all this mess. I don't have very good penmanship. So I got into the the habit of blogging and keeping sort of an electric journal. And oddly enough, Dro, like I'm not one of those guys that likes to read the latest and greatest leadership book. And sometimes to me, Dro, that stuff's just white noise. I mean, you know, there's a soundbite for everything, right? I like novels. I like reading about people's stories. I like memoirs. And a lot of times that's what our teams, you know, my, my, you know, our team is reading. And there's no disrespect to any latest and greatest leadership stuff. But yeah, so, so I had some stuff that was kind of brewing in my, in my head. And I, I, my favorite time of the season or of the, of the year is, is Christmas. I love Christmas. I'm the guy that puts the Christmas tree up the day after Halloween. <laughs> um, and I'm pretty passionate about the fact that God revealed himself to us in the form of a human being, a baby. I mean, the humility in that. And so I started kind of writing about some of those those Advent or Christmas stories we read about. And I had a couple dozen of them. And during the shelter-in-place pandemic, I started sharing them with a neighbor. And I, was, I, I would be reading them, and I'd look up, and he'd just have tears. And he'd say, read another one, read another one. And I, I, he said, you really need to kind of send that out. And so I, I kept working on it, and I ended up sending it out. And I didn't think anything would ever come of it. And lo and behold, there was a publisher out of Austin, Texas, that said, we love this. And now I have a, a Christmas devotional book as a college basketball coach. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I, yeah. can't wait. I can't wait to read it. How can people get a copy of it? So it's on Amazon. It's being sold on amazon.com. And if you just go to Amazon, you can either search my name or you can the, the name of the book's called Letters of Advent. I wanted it to be called 
conversations with a nativity set because I collect nativity sets. But it's called Letters of Advent, or you can just type my name in Amazon and it'll come up. And then the publisher did send me some. And so, you know, I'll put one in the mail uh, to you soon. Uh, and so if, you know, friends and family in the area, I'd be happy just to send a copy to you. But it's on Amazon. Well, Dr. Clint Pleasant, I love saying that. What are <laughs> Still doesn't sound right. <laughs> I always end the podcast. What are some simple tips for young coaches? Mm, mm. You know, I think what comes to mind is, I guess, two things, Drew. You have to buy in to being yourself and figuring out who you are. I think I said it earlier in the call, I would be a horrible Garth Pleasant. And so I think you really have to do the work to self-assess and figure out who you are and then be true to that. I think I've seen too many young coaches throughout the years really try to pursue someone else or kind of be someone else. And, and you, usually those situations don't end well. So an authentic pursuit of, of finding out who you are. And then the other thing too is, Really ask yourself why you're doing it. And I think if you're doing it for any other reason other than building relationships and having the opportunity to mentor and change lives, you'll probably end up either burning out or not being satisfied. And so I know that college coaching can be sort of a, it can look like a sexy career. But again, I would say be honest about why you're really doing this and figure out who you are, be authentic about that, and um, develop your unique skill and talent, and then give it away to the world. Clint, you're an elite level coach. The numbers don't lie. If you don't believe me, get to Rochester this <laughs> this season. Trust me, I've seen it firsthand. You know, you mentioned your dad. Your dad is a Hall of Famer, but I know he would be so proud of you as the coach you've become, but more importantly, as the man, as a husband, and for sure as a dad. The respect I have for you is off the charts. I'm just so appreciative for you sharing your story. And I can't thank you enough for helping young coaches today. It means a lot. And Joe, you're one of the best ones out there. I mean, we've, we've coached against each other a lot. And, you know, you're, you're always authentic in your, in your approach to want to help and serve. And um, that's never been lost on me. And I appreciate it. Well, I'm wishing you a spectacular season from one husband to another. Just massive, massive respect to you. And then just, I know you can flat out coach and you can lead. And I, I'm just so proud of you in, in just so many different ways. So I, I'm just so appreciative. And again, just, I hope you have a wonderful year. And I know even if you don't win a championship, your players are still going to have a championship season just because of the leader they have. So thanks again. Thanks, Joe. I appreciate it. You're the best. That was a great conversation with Coach Clint Pleasant. To me, this is why the podcast was created. Coaches can coach no matter what level. And Dr. Clint Pleasant is the perfect example. The amount of knowledge that Clint shared for young coaches, simply incredible. Failure is really an actual opportunity. Make something complex, simple. We are constantly teaching and emphasizing not what you teach, but what you emphasize. We listen to understand. Listen with your eyes. Culture. You create something that actually takes on a personality. You can feel culture. It has personality. It has energy. You can have anything you want, but you can't have everything. The team will take on the coach's personality. Supply energy to your team. As much as this is a coaching story, this is a story about a tremendous man, a tremendous father, and for sure, a tremendous husband. Clint's wife actually had 30 minutes to live, and 16 years later, they are at each other's side. 
True story. We actually rescheduled our interview due to a special night out that Clinton, his lovely wife, had planned. And I can't wait to read letters of Advent. Thank you, Dr. Clint Pleasant, for sharing your story. Subscribe, rate, and review on whatever platform you are currently listening. And we are everywhere. Follow Tell Me Your Story Coach on Instagram at Tell Me Your Story Coach. Follow Tell Me Your Story Coach on Twitter at Coach Kevin Dro. Connect with me on LinkedIn, Kevin Mondro. Stay safe, be you, keep coaching, and see you on the next episode of the Tell Me Your Story Coach podcast. <laughs>